was walking to the temple, they came unto him to chief priest. It's serious. Not one priest. It was that serious. They had to get the former high priest and the current high priest to make sure they were able to intimidate Christ. But you may ask yourself a question, what the big deal? Maybe they were concerned about who he was and what he was saying. Just to be sure that this man that wields this much authority was not going to lead them astray. Let us know where he came from. But then, if you read the other verses before this verse, you come to understand that these men were out for their own personal gain. They wanted to make the Jews serve them and to get the best of them as they serve them. Verse 28 says, And say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee these authority? It's very important that we understand who Christ is. Anyone that asks this question falls into two camps. The first camp are those who do not want to accept Christ's authority upon their lives. They don't want to be told how to lead their life. They don't want the word of God to have a place in how they decide, in the things they do, in every area of their life. That's the first camp. The second camp are those that are completely ignorant. They don't know who Christ is. They may feel that Christ is a footballer. Some years ago, a young boy was asked, who is Jesus Christ? And he said, Jesus Christ, is he one of the footballers? Obviously not. He is not a footballer. He is the Son of God. But the point is this, Christ has an authority. This morning, during the breaking of bread, we read about who Christ was. And if you don't mind to turn with me to Colossians 1, where Paul read for us this morning. And we can see from scriptures who Christ truly is. Colossians 1 and in verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invincible, whether they are thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And by him all things consist. It's amazing that we have a very big world right now. We have a lot of planet and star system. But the world we are living in right now, the sun we see during summer, the moon we see later on, those are kept together, they're held together by the power of the Son of God. That is who Christ is. I want to move on as we read on the same verse, verse 28. And they say, said unto him, By what authority 
doest thou these things? And who gave thee these authority? Their intention was to cast doubt into the minds of the public, their audience, those listening to Christ. By what authority and who gave you these authority? They wanted those listening to Christ to begin to wonder, does he really have the credibility? Does he have the mandate to actually do the things he did? Or say the things he said. Imagine a couple, a man and a wife, a man and a woman. They have a child. The child, assuming the child is 10 years old. And one day, someone comes around and asks the wife in front of the husband in front of the son and says to the wife tell this man whose son this boy is someone comes to you and tells you as a wife to tell your husband and tell your son who the true father is now forget it could be false. But then, could it be true? Is it possible that this woman has brought me another man's son? Even if it is not true, that question on its own would shake you to the core because there's a possibility, even though it's less than 1%, that there's something in what has just been asked or said. That was the intention of the Pharisees and the high priests when they asked that question in public. But then, they are speaking to the Lord of Lords. They are speaking to the wisdom of God in flesh. Let's go to verse 29. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you of you one question. It can't a question. And answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Was it of heaven, from heaven, or was it of men? Now, what we we'll realize here is this. Christ could have just, you might say so, Christ possibly was trying to dodge the question. You might say Christ was trying to avoid answering the question. But the point is this. A counter question is a question you ask someone to push him or her into a deeper level of reflection. To tax their brains. It's like when your child comes to you and asks you a question and says, Daddy, do you, do you love pizza? And you're wondering, is asking me, do I, do, I like, do I like pizza? You can decide to answer that question directly. 
and give him an answer. Or he could tax his brain and say, who doesn't love pizza? That's a counter question. You obviously get the child to think. And that's not a bad idea, isn't it? The Lord, the teacher of the world, is taxing the brain of the Pharisees. Yeah, think about it. Travel back in time to when John the Baptist was saying that one is coming. I am his forerunner. His shoe I cannot untie. He is a lamb of God. John said, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. John was saying that real time. Because at that time, Christ was coming to be baptized. And he said that. The Pharisees, they knew before this time that John was a man that was respected by the public. They knew, even in themselves, that this man was the real prophet. Because along the lines of read John, John, John and Luke accounts, you realize that at the point, John was very, very blunt. So you vibrant. Who has warned you to feel to come? And he act and he came to what? To baptize as they repented. So at this point, Christ was trying to get them to think back in time into their lives. And before I continue, let me just make a point here. Sometimes we find ourselves at crossroads and we are asking God a question, which is not bad. But we step beyond that boundary and begin to question God about things that are happening in our lives that makes us less happy that gives, makes us feel we have a right to reject the work that Christ did on the cross of Calvary. And my answer to you is this, is a counter question. Have you reflected on the goodness and the kindness and the love that God has shown to you before you got to that point? Are you taking time to look at the past few years or decades you've experienced in life that God showed his love to you or for it doesn't matter and that was Christ was doing here Christ was getting the thing back to their experience with John and the account that John made of him at that time and on that basis he left them there if we can read verses 1, let's just read very quickly. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted him that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. Jesus answering said unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. You might say that Christ didn't answer their question. Maybe not. But if you look at the next chapter in Mark 12, you would realize that Christ actually answered that question 
and went beyond that. Mark 12 opens with us with a parable. A parable is a story told to illustrate a spiritual point. Um, but if you allow me, if you indulge me a little bit, let's read Mark 12 verse 1. And he began to speak unto them by parable. I'm sure he's speaking unto not just his disciples and those who were there. He was speaking also to the Pharisees. If you read verse 12 of Mark, Mark 1 verse 12, he says, And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had but spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. So we understand this from scriptures. Now when Christ was speaking this parable here, he was speaking to everyone, including the high priests, including the scribes, including the elders. But it's interesting that he took this approach. Because when Christ speaks in parable, a number of times, you would notice, he takes aside his disciples, and he expands and explains what those parables were meant to, to state. But in this situation, it was very, very clear because it was in context of the events that happened before in, verse, in, Mark, in Mark 11. Let's read Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an edge about it, and digged a place for the wine vat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. Sometimes we believe that parables may not be an event that actually happened at the point in the past. You could argue that either way. You know, if I were to tell you a parable, I could just pick up a story from somewhere. A fiction, isn't it? But if you were, if God was a piece of heaven and earth, and he knows everything, would he pick out something from nothing to make a point? That's my point. That if God knows everything, if he's the owner of every imagination that comes to our heart, would he need to, would he find it very hard to find a story that actually happened in time past? I guess not. I guess Christ will have known every possible situation or scenarios that's happened in the world, but that's not a big deal. Um, a certain man, to me it sounds specific, but a certain man planted a vineyard. The vineyard here, if you look at Mark 5, verse 1, 7, would reflect Israel. But that's on the point here. Um, a certain man planted a vineyard and set an edge about it. Let's look at the man himself. This man that owned this vineyard, a farm. The vineyard is not a word we use for it. Vineyard is not too bad, but had a farm. He was a man who had a land, and this man planted vineyard and vines in, in the land. Um, he obviously had a bat to obviously get the wine that comes from the, from the, from the vine and he builds a fence around that land that he had, and he built a tower to probably help everyone that walks there and to store produce from the vine, from the vine that's in the farm. But he now employed 
some men, tenants, they were going to be there to use, to, to walk the land and to get the produce and to use that produce to pay back or at least to give the owner of the land part of the produce, which still happens in a way um, in the world. Um, the land you see around us sometimes are not the owner, those of you that are not the owner of the land, excuse me. But at the same time, but they, they obviously rent the land, and that land ultimately gets um, used for farming going forward. This man was very, very careful. He made everything ready, and he gave the land out onto the, um, the tenants or the husbandman. Verse 2 says, and at the, same, at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruits of the vineyard. Verse 3 And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. If you were to be in this man's position, what would you do differently? You've been able to rent out the land. Make it more contextual. You're a landlord, you have a house. You get internet into the house, they're meant to pay the rent. And you send your agent to collect the money from them. And when you when they got there, they were obviously uh, handled pretty lightly. What would you do differently? You might call the police. Isn't it? Again, to come and you know put some legal strength behind that, getting the money off them. He didn't do that. He sent in verse four, and again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. That's worse than the first. Event, isn't it? The first one, just a bit of beating, very slap, end of story. But this one, he was wounded, the stand stones cast on him. The third one, verse 5, and again, he sent another and him, the killed. And he sent many others, many others, beating some and killing some. That's interesting. Their actions shows the kind of people they are. Our actions show the kind of people we are. We can try and justify it. We can try and rationalize it. But ultimately, our action shows the kind of people we are. If we are not checked or challenged, things will only get from bad to worse. The Bible says that evil men get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But that is not my point. My point is this. In verse 6, Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last 
unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But these husbandmen said amongst themselves, This is his head. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. Why did he continue to send servants slaves? And eventually, he sent his son. He sent prophets like Jeremiah. He was beaten and was thrown into the pits. He sent Amos. He sent Elijah. He sent Elisha. He sent even John the Baptist. And they beheaded him. He didn't stop there. Do you know why? Because God loves you. You might feel that this doesn't make sense. Sometimes love doesn't make sense. Because God loves you above every other thing. He decided knowing fully well that they will beat him, false stripes save one. They will humiliate him. Their mind, you see, before this verse, there was no indication <coughs> that they will either beat or stone or kill the prophet's saints before him. It wasn't pre-planned. Was more of an advantage. This must come here, asking for the rent. He spoke in a very, very harsh tone, gave him a slap, and it began from there and got worse. But this one, it was a plan. They took their time. They had their mission very clear in their mind. This is the son. Once he's dead, the land is ours. But God still sent him as a lamb to be slain. Because God loves you. Verse 10. Now, have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes because we have given our life to Christ. He's meaningless to you if you continue to reject the sacrifice that Christ made for you on the cross. I want to read the last section of my summit here today, and that is in Mark 12, verse 13. And the anchoring verse that brings the whole, or the verse I've written to you to focus is actually the last of the verses, which is verse 17. I'll begin from verse, from verse 13. And they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. You, you have to understand that in those days there were different 
kinds of parties of Jews. We we had the um, the Sadducees. They didn't believe much in the world resurrection. They were much more, you know, from a very very high class. Um, they were obviously well to do financially to an extent. We had the Pharisees. They were intensely religious. They obviously held the law of God, um, the customs, um, very, very seriously. The result was purely to, to the Israelites and what they gained from them. Most of the Herodians, they were a bit different. These were intensely political. They, they had this mindset. Um, they were loyal to Herod, to Rome, and the law of Rome. Now, verse 12 tells, verse 13 tells us those who came to try and catch Christ in his words. And what is interesting is this. The Pharisees, they were obviously, as I said to you earlier on, they obviously largely were very religious people. The Herodians were obviously more politically oriented people going forward and were loyal to the plan is this. They are going to ask Christ a question. And this question was such that it was meant to be binary. Either heads or tails. Either yes or no. And that was the, that was the plan. But the challenge is this. If Christ said head, He'll obviously please one party and upset the other party. If I said tail, the reverse will be true. He will still end up upsetting someone. And the plan was that if he chose either way, he would end up upsetting someone and they will use that against him. So if he chose, for instance, let's just very, very, very quickly, first of all. Verse 14 says, And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the persons of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. That was meant to set the stage. That was meant to set a slippery slope for Christ to fall into. Even though they said, that Christ taught the truth. That was the tongue in the cheek. They didn't really mean it. They didn't really believe it. But let's read on. Here's the question. Is it lawful to give tributes, tax, to Caesar or not? Verse 15. Shall we give or shall we not give? Now, Tax is something that anyone that walks and gets paid in the UK doesn't like. The more you work, the more tax you pay. Yes, that's true. But then, in those days, let me show you one thing very quickly. 
Not all countries in the world pay tax. Let's, we're here, whatever else, let's just move on. But in those days, they had to pay tax also. Their tax were more in a way than what we are paying right now. Somewhat, somewhat. And in their own time, they paid taxes called um, land tax. So if you had land, if you owned the land, bought a land, you pay tax. And that's something that they had to do. So it's called ground tax. So if you always on that ground, you always have to bring up some crops and the grains, you pay 10%. If you bring up things like fruits, wine, 20%. And then stop there, you pay income tax, which is not bad. I wish they could obviously buy in Nigeria in the UK. They pay 1% of the income, which is not a bad idea. Um, anyway, we're here. But it doesn't end there. The first two tax I mentioned to you right now, the ground tax and the income tax, were tax that you pay as a civil citizens in any society, largely um, at that time and in our time. But you remember they were under occupation at this time, and the Romans wanted to oppress them in every area possible. They wanted to make sure that they felt uncomfortable as, um, as in quotes, not slave, but as being under Roman um, authority. And they pay the tax called the poll tax. If you're between the ages of um, 12 to 65, as a man, you pay a tax of one penny um, a year. And if you are a, a woman between your 14 to 65, you pay the same amount of tax, poll tax a year. But that wasn't the issue. The issue is this. That tax, even though it's very, very small, symbolized ownership by Caesar. So each time, the Jews at that time, each time they paid that tax, they felt psychologically that they belonged to Caesar and not to God. And that was quite an issue. And when the Pharisees and Herodians came, that was their push. This tax that the Israelites hate paying, would you endorse that tax you paid? If he said so, he was challenging the sovereignty of God. And he would obviously appease it, the minds and the hearts of the of, of Caesar. But if he said no, you belong to Christ, you belong to God, don't pay tax, then the Herodians would stand and say, This man wants to rebel against Caesar. Let's arrest him, like he did John the Baptist, and let's cut off his head. That was the plan. That was the plan. Let's be thin. Shall we give, or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. People say that Christ wasn't that rich at that time, he couldn't afford a penny. It depends how you look at it. You know, if, if, if he didn't have money and didn't get to actually pen to illustrate, that would be a point. But then um, 
it's almost like saying you miss a billionaire on the streets and you happen to give him a billion pounds and I can't give it to you. You could just call a fish and bring me a penny. So it's not really hold much for the formula, but it's not, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. This is a big deal, verse 16. And they brought it and he said unto them, Whose image is this? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Verse 17. Jesus answering said unto them, Render unto Caesar. Let me pause and rewind a little bit, if you can allow me. I'm almost done. Verse 16 says again, And they said unto him, and he, sorry, and he said, why, says, he says, why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see. Verse says, and they brought it, and he said unto them. Now, let's pause for a second there, if you can indulge me. For most of us here, if we travel back in time to that very moment when Christ was asked that question, and you look at that scene before he answered, before he uttered a word, there have been a gap of probably some few seconds, I believe, at the very least, some few seconds, um, or some few minutes. And I just wonder. What have gone through your mind at that point? Would they catch Christ? The first question they asked him in Mark 11, he didn't really answer it directly. This one is a binary question. It's either head or tail. Is that yes or no? And you know, either way he flips, you fall into a trap. Before he answered that question, What's up on your mind at that time? Would he have messed up? Would he have gotten the answer wrong? Would there have been a shame, disappointment? And sometimes, let me just squeeze in something here. Sometimes in our life, we are faced with a question. There is a challenge. We need to make a decision. We need to take a step. And we are in that few seconds, for you maybe a few days, for you a few months, for you a few years, and you're wondering how would this pan out? Would God give the right answer? Would God speak the right word? Well, we can find hope in this, that Christ has the answer. It may not be heads or tails, but it's the right answer. Don't forget that. It may not be heads or tails, but it will be the right answer. Verse 17, and Jesus answered them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things 
that are God's, and they marvel at him. They marveled at him. They didn't see coming. And that's the beauty of walking with God. So when you find yourself in a position, situation, and you're like, either way it's going to go wrong. Just wait for God to speak to you through his word. Just wait for God's time. And God's answer will be an answer of peace. Do you know what? If Christ had answered hell, you have been trouble. In the land. If prayer answered tail, you have been troubled in the land. Do you know why? If he answered head and said, you know, don't pay tax, or rather pay tax, all the Israelites will be happy, but Herod will be upset. When he's upset, they might push Herod to behead Christ. Now, Herod, or one of his kids, had just beheaded John the Baptist. And if that happened to Christ, with the flow of men behind him, it might lead to a worse uproar. But Christ gave an answer of peace. An answer. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I want you to open with me, if you can, to Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there are no power but of God. And the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisted the power, resisted the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, you, you have to try to understand what Christ said in Mark 12. In his response to and the Herodians and the Pharisees. These were pressing the Israelites. These were not people that made the wisest of decisions. But Christ said, submit. And let's come back home a bit. You know, sometimes you look at politicians and they make this <coughs> decisions. And you're like, that's given a. And you're like, it's not a bitch to come up with. We're in the recession, and the um, the Bank of England interest rate is just going up. <coughs> and 
Christ said, let's fight that. Render unto Caesar. The things that are Caesar. And unto God, the things that are God. Provided <clears throat> the laws they make does not contradict the word of God. The Prince of Peace commands us to be for peace. I want to end with something. Have you ever been to, to let's assume this is the first floor, ground floor. It was stacked up a hundred floors on this. On kind of parallel structure by the side. And they're about a meter apart, 10 meters apart. And we'll tie the rope from one end to the other end at the top of the hundredth floor. Are you following me? So two skyscrapers, 10 meters apart, and you tie the rope between them. And you watched a man walk on that tight rope unaided. If he fell, he would die. End of story. And you see him do it ten times. He's a world champion. Do you believe he can do it again? Yes or no, please, if you don't mind. Yes. But if he asks you to come on his shoulders this time, what would you say? I'm sitting here nodding. No way. <laughs> No way. Watching an expert walk, walk a tightrope requires confidence in the ability of the performer. But sitting on his shoulder takes conviction that only comes through obedience of faith. Jesus walked the tightrope on the cross for you. But now he wants you to put your hope and trust in him alone and always. Let's pray. I must like God we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for giving us grace to hear your word. But we ask about this, that you enable us to bring fruit of righteousness as we receive this word with conviction. Putting our ultimate and absolute confidence in you, always and alone.